So one of the most delightful, yes, probably stressful things that you can do in life is plan for a wedding, especially if that's your own wedding. It's delightful in a, in a sense that it's the biggest day of your life, right? A lot of us, we dream about this day uh, since we are young. Um, we know that the spotlight is going to be on us, right? Everything is going to be about me, 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 right? <laughs> you, you make a lifelong commitment to the person that you love in front of the people that you care and love. I mean, the day doesn't get any bigger than this. It's beautiful, it's exciting, and because of that, it is so stressful. Um, it's the one day that things can't go wrong, right? It's the one day that you can't mess up. And because of that, you get stressed out planning for this wedding because you want everything to be perfect. I remember when um, I was planning uh, uh, my wedding with my wife, uh, we were looking at different venues, we were looking at different dresses. It was so stressful, right? What flowers to use, uh, what kind of decoration to do, what kind of service we're going to have, all these different things, you know, you have to figure out. But probably one of the most stressful things um, on the to-do list is narrowing down your guest list. Because you, you want to know who's coming so that you can have enough food. You know, having enough food is super important. You know, um, it will be terrifying if you run out of food or if you run out of drinks at a wedding. Now this nightmare actually happens in today's passage. You know, there's a wedding and there is no wine. And uh, because this is a well-known story, a lot of us have the tendency to just tune out automatically. Some of us, you know, we heard this story over and over again that it's to the point that we can recall all the little details about this story. And I'm aware of that. But I think when it comes to some of the more common stories, the, one of the, some of the more familiar stories that we uh, know in the Bible, we tend to misunderstand it and we tend to misinterpret it. For example, this is a very... Uh, important passage for the Roman uh, Catholics, uh, the Catholics, uh, because this passage, it shows how important Mary is, right? It's foundational to the, the Mariology, if, if I can use that word, right? They believe that it is really good to pray to Mary rather than Jesus. Why? Because this passage shows that Jesus can never say no to Mary. No, even if it's a, kind of an unwise request, even though it's kind of, uh, the request is kind of out of bounds, right? Ultimately, Jesus, he'll listen to the request of Mary simply because Mary is the mother of Jesus. They have an extremely high view of Mary simply because of this passage. Now, some people will say, no, this passage is about obedience. You look at the servants right here, right? Those are the ensemble heroes right there because they're the guys who, who they receive the command from Jesus and they do exactly what Jesus told them to do. And because of that, you see a miracle. And the moral of the story is, okay, you have to be obedient to God, you have to be obedient to Jesus in order to see supernatural things happen in your life. Right? The reason why you don't see stuff, crazy stuff happening in your life is simply because you're not obedient enough. You're not doing stuff the right way. Right? You just have to listen and be obedient to God, and God is going to do something that's crazy, that's out of this world. Now, some people use this passage to say, man, this is a passage that justifies drinking. Right? Because, I mean, what better example is there? Jesus, he turns water into wine. Right? It doesn't say grape juice. Even in the Greek, it doesn't say grape juice. Right? It's, it's, it's clearly wine. And so this is the passage that gives you freedom and, and, and really the liberty to go drink and, and, and explore that area. And while, yeah, we can have a debate on that, uh, 
I think the main point of this story is really found within the flow of this book, the Gospel of John. No, if you look down at verse 11, it says, This, the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. So John, who's writing this gospel, says this is a sign and it's a display of this glory, the glory of Jesus Christ, right? Jesus turning water into wine. John does not use the word miracle. Rather, he used the word, word sign. In fact, this is the only gospel out of the four gospels, the only gospel that uses the word sign instead of the word miracle. Right? John is very strategic in that sense. And he, whenever he sees something supernatural, he uses the word sign. Not only that, he's very selective of these signs. He says that I only include, he only includes actually seven signs in his entire gospel. For example, the gospel of Mark, gospel of Luke, they have way more signs. And it's not because John doesn't know about the signs and wonders of Jesus Christ. It's not because he hasn't witnessed the miracles of Jesus, right? He was one of the closest people to Jesus. And John says in chapter 21, Now there were so many other things that Jesus did, where every one of them, if they were written on a book, you know, I suppose that this world could not contain those books. So Jesus did so many stuff, supernatural stuff, right, that if he were to write everything on books, there is no library or no, store, no, no, no storage where he could contain all those books. And he explains why he's so selective when it comes to these signs. In chapter 20, he says this, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing that you may have life in his name. So um, on Sundays, I don't know if you noticed this, but on the roads, on um, on 50, on, on Lee Highway, we have different signs, right? These signs point you to this church. You know, it's hard to find this church uh, if you don't have navigation. Sometimes even if you have navigation, right, it's hard to find this church because it's so in the neighborhood. That's why we put out all these signs. I know these signs are not that pretty. I know they're not that appealing, but they do their job. They point people to the right destination. Now, the reason why John is using the word sign is because these signs are supposed to point us to a destination, and that destination is Jesus Christ, right? According to chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, John is saying, if you understand these signs correctly, whichever sign you see in this gospel, it should point you to Jesus, the fact that he is the Son of God, the fact that he is the Messiah, the Christ, and the fact that in him and him alone, there's eternal life when you believe in him. So if we are faithful to the text, if we examine this text um, strategically, I think we could arrive at this place where we too realize that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and we will be encouraged to believe in his name for eternal life. So with that in mind, and I hope that you have your Bibles open, let's look at verse 1 and 2. It says this, On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. So the place is Cana in Galilee. This is not far from um, Jesus' hometown, Nazareth, right? It's in Galilee. Um, this is a small town, maybe about 50 people, 60 people max, right? So it's a small town, and there's a wedding going on. So that's a big deal, right? Jesus is there. Jesus' mom is there. Uh, his disciples are there, which he called just three, day, three days ago. So we kind of get a sense that this is someone that Jesus knows, 
right? Jesus, um, his mom, we suspect that they were somehow related to this person, maybe a friend, maybe a relative, and it wouldn't be surprising because back in the days when people lived together, they were either family or friends, right? They spent time with one another. So it was a big deal when someone got married, right? You would want to be there. So this party is going on, um, and something terrible happens. In verse 3, it says this, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. So how many of you have been to a party where they ran out of food? And I remember when I was in college, they always had parties that ran out of food. And it's the worst feeling, right? You get there and it's like you have leftovers, you have scraps, right? And you'll still eat it, but you'll be grumbling, man, what kind of party is this? Uh, I mean, (laughs) and it's a bigger deal if this happens at a wedding. Right? Um, even today, um, if, this, if you were to think, go to a wedding that ran out of food, you would think, man, what kind of host is this? You know, what were they thinking? But in first century Judea, this was a bigger issue. And this was very significant because weddings, they weren't just there for two hours, but they actually last for weeks, up to seven days. So you want to make sure that people were fed. Right? These people traveled from far away. They were spending their time multiple days at this place. So you want to make sure they are fed. Right? It was the biggest event in the community. Right? It was a festival. It was something that everyone was looking forward to. It was a celebration of, of, of joy and happiness. Right? The financial responsibility, by the way, was placed on the bridegroom. The, the man was in charge of providing everything, uh, setting up everything for, for uh, the bride in a way that this was a way to re- earn the respect of uh, the, the bride's father and their relatives. So we have this situation where um, things go bad, the bridegroom probably panicking, people who planned this wedding probably panicking. And so Mary, somehow being related to these people, goes to Jesus and says, hey, they have no wine. This is a pretty serious issue. Now, why would Mary actually go to Jesus and make this request? You know, is it because she knows deep down inside of her heart that you know, Jesus is the Son of God, so he has the ability to do anything? Uh, yeah, I think that that could be the case. You know, Mary was aware that the child that she had was not just any child, but it was the child that was to be the Messiah, that this child was not an ordinary child. But I think also this was out of habit because we see there's two places that Mary appears in the Gospels and uh, in the Gospel of John. And it's here and later it's on the cross. And every single time we have no idea where Joseph is, the father of Jesus. And that's kind of strange. And not only that, at the cross, Jesus commits Mary to John, showing that probably Joseph by this point was dead. Right, so who would take on the financial responsibility and the burden to provide for the family and protect the family? It was Jesus. Jesus was the guy who took care of all the problems in the household. And so Mary, out of habit, she goes to Jesus, you know, understanding that this is a serious issue. And she says, hey, they don't have any wine. No, she didn't have any secret kind of motivations behind it. But in verse 4, it says this. Jesus said to her, woman. Right? What does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, if I said woman in my house, right, uh, like to my mom, man, I'll get slapped, I'll get peed, she'll probably pick me up, and, and, and like when I was younger, right, she'll probably pick me up and throw me out of the house. You just don't say that word right, to your mom. 
Uh, and I do want you to know that it wasn't totally disrespectful in a sense because it could be the equivalent of like ma'am. And I know some of you guys call your mom by, your first by her first name, which is still kind of weird for me. Um, but it, this expression, it wasn't that rude. No, it wasn't that inappropriate, but it was definitely not intimate. And that's kind of the key, right? Um, Jesus, he's drawing a line between him and Mary, right? He is not responding as her son. You know, by the way, why does Jesus address, you know, Mary in such a way? Maybe some of us might think, you know, she didn't, he didn't like the tone of Mary, right? Or maybe Jesus was just this bad person uh, that did not honor his mom. Maybe you might think um, Jesus himself thought, hey, there's no way I can provide wine. So it, this is a ridiculous favor that you're asking of me to do. No, and the most bizarre thing of all, all of this is this. Jesus eventually listens to Mary and does what she asks him to do. That's pretty bizarre, right? That means Jesus is just simply playing with Mary, right? She says, he says, oh, woman, you know, what does it have to do with me? And then after, after next, in a couple of verses, she's going to provide wine. So what is he doing? I think the key phrase to understand here is, my hour has not yet come. Now, this is a phrase that is used four times in the gospel. Every time it is used, it is pointing to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Throughout the gospel, Jesus is saying, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. He's pointing to the fact that there is a timeline that I am following, and it's not of this world. It is from God. It is from my heavenly Father. I don't just follow the schedule that's placed on my life by people around me, but I follow the schedule that's placed on my heart that's, um, by my heavenly Father. No, it's pretty clear that Jesus, that his true identity is not rooted as the son of Mary, but his true identity is rooted in being the son of God. So you see that Jesus is trying to make this very clear, that he is the son of God, that he's not doing this out of favor, just because he feels bad for his mom, just because he feels bad for the situation, he's doing this simply because he is the son of God. Right? He's not taking a personal favor. No, and Mary recognizes this. She doesn't say, hey, how can you speak to, speak to me like that? She doesn't, she doesn't blow up. Rather, she says to the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. So Mary, she doesn't get mad at her, at her son's response because she's well aware that man, Jesus, that he's not just my son, but he is the son of God. So Jesus Christ, he is the son of God. He follows this divine schedule. He doesn't work and do things out of people's needs or agenda, but he follows the agenda of the Father. So, it, but, so although his hour has not yet come, he kind of gives a mini preview of what is to come. And I think this is a good place to talk about wine. Right, because I think we need to kind of clarify this. Uh, it is true that this is real wine, right? It does contain alcohol for sure. Now, what's the biblical perspective on wine that we should have? I think one thing that's very clear according to Galatians 5.21 is drunkenness is a sin. If you lose control of yourself to wine or to strong uh, liquor, that's clearly a sin. It says in Galatians 5.21, Paul gives a long list of, of, of things of the flesh, and he says... Those who do such things, which includes drunkenness, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Drunkenness is clearly a sin. Now, what about drinking itself? 
It's really hard to argue based on scripture that drinking itself is prohibited, especially when Isaiah talks about it as a symbol of joy and celebration, especially when Paul says, hey, if you don't feel that great, you should take a little bit uh, of wine for your stomach, right? And we kind of do that. We take NyQuil, which is 10% alcohol. I don't know if you're aware of that. So don't get too excited that Paul is saying, take some for your stomach, right? (laughs) He's like just simply saying, take some NyQuil, right? Um, The Greek word for... um, wine here is oinos. And you have to understand there's three words that are used in the New Testament to describe any sort of alcohol. Same with the Hebrew. Um, And it's not just any type of alcohol, but it's actually diluted alcohol, diluted wine. And this makes sense because in the first century, people did not have refrigerators, right? right? So you have a bunch of grapes, you have different fruits. What are you supposed to do? Well, in a couple of days, things are going to go bad. How are you going to store them? So one way they, they, they handled all those fruits and preserved those fruits is they went through this fermentation process. And then why didn't they just drink those, that, that, um, that kind of that wine, that strong wine straight up? Well, they knew, the Jews knew clearly from Scripture that drunkenness was a sin. So if you drink strong liquor, strong wine, then eventually you get drunk and you would sin, right? So it made sense for people to dilute uh, dilute the wine. And, I mean, why couldn't they just drink water? Well, back in the days, they didn't have a good purification process. And if you've been to uh, Israel, you know that it's not the cleanest water uh, that they have, although Galilee is a little bit better uh, than the Jordan River. But still, you know, people, if they drink water straight up, and this happens if you go to different places that don't have good purification processes, you get sick. So in order to not get sick, in order to not sin, what they did was they took about, uh, they diluted the wine for about, into about 10%. Uh, no, sorry. They put 10% wine and put 90% water. So they diluted it uh, a lot. So that although you tr- would drink this a lot, you wouldn't get drunk. And this makes sense because later on, right, the, the, the master of, of, of the banquet says, hey, normally you let people drink freely. And if that was true, if that was real, the wine that we drink these days, if you drink freely, what's going to happen eventually? You get drunk. So that would, be, that would mean that Scripture is contradicting itself. It's telling you not to get drunk. However, it's telling you to drink freely. That doesn't make sense. The fact that people are drinking for seven days, right, and still they're having a good time, they're not losing themselves, it doesn't say that they're sinning and, and, and doing stupid things, right? It's pretty clear in the text that this is not ordinary wine that we see today. Now, I have a lot more to say, but I'll just stop there, simply because that's not the point of this text. The point of this text is that in a wedding, there has to be wine, there has to be this drink where it is the source of joy and celebration, but at the same time, this is out, and Jesus says, okay, let me take care of this. In verse 6, it says this, Now there were six stone jars, uh, water jars there, for the Jewish uh, rites of purification, which, hold, which holding 20 to 30 gallons. So in today's kind of measurements, it's about 150 gallons of, of water that was there, six jars. These are gigantic jars, by the way. And one thing you have to notice is this is not drinking water. It says this water was reserved for the Jewish rites of purification, meaning that's the water that people wash their hands in. And that's before, before a meal. And you see in Mark 7 that this was a tradition that was created by the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders because, you know, whenever someone came, went outside, they were exposed to 
um, uh, to unholiness. Maybe they come in contact with a Gentile. Maybe they come in contact with someone who, who is, is, is not holy, that they are, that, and they were afraid that they would be contaminated uh, in, in such a way. So what they did was when they came back home before a big meal, they would always wash their hands in a very particular manner so that they know that not only physically they will be clean, but spiritually they are ready to receive the food. Notice the number of jars here. And John is really big on numbers you know, because we know that he wrote the book of Revelations. The m- number is six, the inc- incomplete number, one less than the number of perfection, seven. So it kind of shows something about this purification process that although it was there, although it was a tradition, to some degree it was incomplete. That it, it, although it might have helped them you know, in, in a psychological manner, ultimately this purification water did not help them when it comes to washing their sins, right? And, and so we see this kind of this nature where um, the Jewish people, they were seeking to become pure, seeking to become holy, yet what they had at that time was incomplete. Jesus turns this into wine. And this is really a preview of what he's going to do moving forward because we know in the Lord's Supper, what symbolizes Jesus' blood? It's the drink, right? No, John... First uh, John 1 7 says this the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sins you no know, Jesus he, in a sense he's kind of giving these previews of what is to come he's showing how what was imperfected in the Jewish purification rituals you know, Jesus is perfected in a sense through his blood through the cross so Jesus he is the Christ the son of God Jesus he is also the ultimate purifier and we move on. In verse 7, it says, Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And now this makes sense. Why would you fill it up to the brim? It's because there was a possibility if they weren't filled up to the brim, what Jesus could do is just walk over, just dump some concentrated wine, right? And voila, you would have wine. But what he, they did was they filled it up all the way to the brim so people know that the only way that this can change into wine is through a miracle. There's no other way. If not, if you pour something on it, it, it would overflow. Right? And it says in verse 8, And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. So the master of the feast is kind of this head servant. He's this wedding coordinator, if I can say, say that, right? Uh, on behalf of the bridegroom, he's the one who's kind of coordinating all the, the, the different things that needs to be taken care of, of in this event. And can you imagine how, how anxious he would have been when he heard that there is no wine, that things are going bad, right? Um, that he was probably panicking, right, looking for help, you know, you know, or maybe he was planning to just run away because he was so embarrassed at this point. And so in verse 9, the master of this feast, he tastes the water, and now he realized the water now became wine. And he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast, he calls the bridegroom, because bridegroom is ultimately the one who's in charge, right? He says, did you do this? You know, how did you, how did you do this? You know, you knew that we ran out of, out of wine. Did you store some wine in your, I don't know, in your basement somewhere else, and you just brought it out? Man, I'm so thankful that things are going okay. In verse 10, he says, and he said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. So we see where this servant is coming from. He's saying, the only man, you did this. You, you hid this wine and you brought it out. 
And you know that that's kind of foolish because this wine is not just great in its quantity, it's good in its quality. Right? It tastes super good. And he's saying, why did you hide this wine till now? Right? It tastes so good. You know, um, and the reason why people bring out good wine first is because you know this. Like, if you go to a restaurant, uh, when you first taste some food, man, it is amazing. Super good, right? Especially when you're hungry. But if you continue to eat something, it's just like, ah, right, food is food. Same with uh, drinks, right? In the beginning, if you have a good drink, right, it tastes really good. But the more and more you drink it, it's like, man, I can't drink this anymore. Uh, I love soda. Uh, I'm addicted to soda. But when I drink at least like three or four cans of soda, I'm, I'm, I say to myself, man, I can't drink anymore because it doesn't taste that great. So logically, it made sense to bring out the good wine first. And so uh, this, this guy, this servant, he says, why didn't you do that? And of course, the bridegroom doesn't have the answer because he didn't do that. No, it was Jesus who did it. Now, I want you to think about this. The bridegroom had about a year to prepare for this wedding. According to uh, the first century tradition of the, um, of the Jews, they kind of went into this engagement process, right? And for a year, this bridegroom had the time to rearrange all the details of this ceremony. He would collect all the financial resources that he can collect to provide uh, for this festival to earn the respect of, of his father-in-law and their families. And if things went wrong, it was possible for them to sue the bridegroom for disrespecting their family, for putting on such a poor festival. So in a sense, this bridegroom was in big trouble when he heard that the wine was out. You know, you have to understand that he probably put all his effort, all his resources, he tried everything in his power to make this happen, yet it fell apart. And I think that's kind of where the main message is in today's passage because that's kind of our lives. Our lives, you know, we try so hard to put things together, to prepare things, to keep things under control, right? Whether it's our children, you know, I feel this a lot these days, right? I tried my best to do everything for my child, and yet, you know, I feel like I'm always, I always come short as a father, right? In ministry, I try so hard to take on my responsibilities and do what I need to do, but I always feel like I come short as a pastor, no, as a husband, there's so many things I want to do and I should do. And I do try. I, I make the effort. I put in the time. But life just seems to fall a little bit short. And isn't that life? No, whether you are studying for something, you're pursuing a certain career, maybe there's a project that you are working on. No, our goal a lot of times is to have comfort and to have a stable life. But the problem is that our greatest efforts, you know, our best is never good enough for this life. And that's really the problem here. That this bridegroom had a year to prepare a festival for the people that he loves and people that, that, that he respects, yet he failed miserably. But there's one bridegroom that did not fail. In John chapter 3, you know, John writes this part where you know, people are asking John the Baptist who Jesus is. And John the Baptist, he says this. Listen carefully. He says in verse 28, You yourselves bear my witness that, I, that you say, I am not the Christ. I say that I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has sent me, the one who has sent, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom is me who stands and hears him rejoice greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now 
complete. So there, what John the Baptist is basically saying is, I'm not the bridegroom that you're looking for, but I'm the friend of the bridegroom. Now, if the bridegroom is a friend of John the Baptist, who is he? Jesus. Jesus. When you come short in life, when your best efforts and your resources is not enough, there's a person who's willing to step in and do something in your life to transform your life, change something about your life so that your joy will not be cut short, but you will have endless joy and endless celebration in life. No, Jesus, he is the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus, he is the ultimate purifier in which the Jewish purification process was not able to do. And Jesus, he is the ultimate bridegroom in which when we fall short in life, he is able to provide endless joy and celebration. And because of Jesus, because of who he is and because of what he has done for us, you know, we are able to pursue this relationship with God, that we are able to be in his presence, that we are able to enjoy his favor and his blessings in life. And John concludes this story in verse 11 by saying this, this, the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Now Jesus just called his disciples three days ago. And after they saw this miracle, this sign in the wedding, they knew and they began to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And there's one question that remains today. How would you respond to who Jesus is and what he has done for your life? Are you just going to go on and try to put the best wedding that you can possibly put together in your life? Or would you recognize that your best is never good enough and, but you have this bridegroom right next to you that is willing to take on that responsibility and to provide for you in a way that you can have endless joy and eternal life. Let's pray.